Welcome to the second in a series of interviews with leaders of disruptive businesses. Disruption is often about technology, or doing things differently, or both. Often the challenge is fighting the tide of inertia which characterizes many industries. I'm delighted to welcome today Gary Jones, Chief Executive of Perfect Channel, a business which I believe is disruptive, and I would argue is unique. And as a B2B marketplace technology business, it's probably delivering services that most people won't even have dreamt about. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Maybe given I, the, the intro, which I think is hopefully very complimentary, could you start by telling us uh, a little bit more about yourself and your path to be involved with Perfect Channel, just before we get into the nuts and bolts of what Perfect Channel does? Yes, of course. I mean, I've been involved with uh, marketplaces and applied technology for over 30 years in different guises. and I've seen different trends and participated in obviously driving a number of those trends. Traditional markets uh, have given way to electronic markets. Uh, handwritten tickets have given way to electronic back offices. Uh, clearing houses have come in as another way of credit inter- intermediation and netting. And so we've seen you know, massive changes. I would say that it's still accelerating. Uh, we had changes somewhat 20, 25 years ago, but in the last five years, uh, things have really accelerated. My background uh, started out really as um, effectively a trader and investment bank, um, background in science from university and uh, MBA from American Business School uh, in California, Stanford. And while I was there, I worked a lot on derivatives. Myron Scholes was one of my professors at Stanford, and I wrote some papers on option pricing, and I went to work on Wall Street as an options trader. Um, and as part of that, we built models and we built systems and everything else. Um, I then worked for a couple of other investment banks. Again, uh, when you're a trader, you get promoted to manage other traders who are younger and quicker than you, I suppose. But you then become more of a risk manager, and the risk manager also is involved with managing technology systems to manage the risk, and that was a, a sort of natural trend. But I've been in, in investment banking for around uh, 20 years with different entities, and always wanted to get back to using technology in a much more applied sense. As I say, I started uh, with a science background and was reasonably uh, computer literate some time ago, obviously. Um, But around the time of the dot-com boom, um, I was invited to help start a new electronic company called BrokerTech, which is one of the first pioneers in the OTC uh, electronic marketplace. And it was owned initially by a number of Wall Street banks and by myself and some colleagues as as, as minor partners in the structure. And the idea was there to take uh, major markets, major liquid markets, and transform them into electronic markets with the full electronic STP, as I mentioned earlier. And that was a great success. It's now the largest uh, OTC uh, marketplace in the world. It's now just been bought recently by the CME, and it's part of their product suite. Uh, before that, it was bought by ICAP and then morphed into it. Um, so from that point of view, I suppose my career has moved along from the old analog world into a digital world over time. And after we um, sold um, BrokerTech to ICAP and then uh, later later the CME, uh, I moved into the exchange world, um, initially working for NYC Euronext as the CEO of the London Futures Exchange and head of derivatives for that company globally as well. And then later on with the Hong Kong Exchange, being the CEO of the LME and also um, co-head of markets for Hong Kong. So over the years, I've worked in the US, Europe, Asia, geographically, and I've moved in terms of marketplaces, moving from analog processes to digital processes. And I think from that perspective, um, 
you know, probably one of the people who's experienced that change over a period. And Perfect Channel, you know, essentially would have been a vendor for me in any of those old roles. And um, it's a small um, but very interesting company. And I'd sort of retired from my day-to-day work and was spending time on my own business interests, et cetera. And I was approached by the board to say, look, we think we've got this great business. We'd like to significantly expand what they do. It's not growing as fast as we'd like to. It needs someone with uh, you know, managerial responsibilities and experience in taking this to the next level. And so I agreed to come on board, take a look for them, write a new strategic plan. And then even before we'd finished that work, they said, look, would you come in and run the company? Because we really like what you have to say. And you seem very excited about the prospects for the company. Uh, and that's what happened. And in January 2020, just about a year ago, I took over as a CEO, having been on the board uh, since September of 19. Um, so, you know, what the company does very interested me, the potential interested me, and the rate of growth that's possible also interested me. So I mentioned in the in the intro that I thought that this was a pretty unique business and perhaps one that people wouldn't automatically, see. certainly the man on the street wouldn't automatically think about, even if ultimately I think you're going to tell us that actually they're probably using or will be using this sort of technology uh, quite frequently. Could you just give us a little bit more background to the origins of Perfect Channel, what it actually does, and, and perhaps also why you think it's unique? So Perfect Channel was originally started some years ago by a gentleman called Philip Bird, essentially as a, a software company um, and on a very small scale, uh, very successful in gaining some real AAA clients early on, uh, which essentially gave life to the business. Um, but it was always a you know, one-off project kind of company for a few clients and never really developed relationships and built those business relationships over time. Um, so the company itself started by looking at marketplaces in general. And by marketplace, I mean anything where there's an interaction between buyers and sellers and the value chain that that creates. And they overlaid that looking at auction technology, different ways to auction things. I don't mean auction in the auction house sense. I really mean in terms of sense of trying to clear a market by using different techniques and different methods. And then I suppose the second overlay is with artificial intelligence, which was very new at the time, obviously developed since then, and specifically on data science, which helps participants in the marketplaces and auction processes to make intelligent decisions using algorithms and uh, recommendation engines that drive it. Um, the company is quite unique in a sense that it, it's quite small, quite bespoke. Um, it has um, a very good client list and across diverse industries. And so when you look right now at how companies are reacting to the pandemic, it's quite interesting that they see that the benefits of moving to a digital framework, not just a remote framework, but using digital technology. And some companies have grasped the nettle very quickly and are moving quite quickly to do that. And others, having had their head caught in the headlights at the start of the pandemic, are still waiting to change. And there'll be a massive difference between those that move quickly and a first mover Again, first mover advantage in certain areas, those that don't. So I think that it's the right company at the right time, um, but there are significant benefits to clients from what we do. Maybe I could perhaps go into a little more detail on the benefits side. So for one of our clients, uh, a major car leasing company, Carnex, and Carnex and Lease Plan are two sister companies. We allow them to manage the inventory of cars in 34 countries in the lease and lease back areas. And that enables them to look at the way that clients interact with their systems, and they can look at different stock in different countries, 
recommendation engines can be built to show them you wanted to buy this and now it's available here. Do you want this? This is what it costs to be delivered. This is how it, it all comes together. We also let the company operating in multiple locations look at the relative performance of each location. So it starts to help them manage their business on a major scale. There's a whole host of new things that they can do now as they can't do things face-to-face in the same way as they did before. We're also talking about virtual showrooms for cars and things like that, which need a technology underpinning. Um, in another industry, for example, the auction business, Christie's, one of the major world, world-class world organizations in that space, decided fairly early on to move to more online auctions and away from the traditional physical auction where you're in a room with a paddle. Um, there has been some telephone and internet interaction in that marketplace for some time, but we've seen a big acceleration there. And firms like Christie's are significantly improving their uh, digital footprint and really, that is, is setting a whole new paradigm of, of, of trading in, in that space. You know, we also work with um, companies in marketplaces that are not standalone financial markets, things like the dairy market where perishable goods needs a particular type of technology, needs auction technology to clear the market. If the market doesn't clear, there are perishable goods that can't be redone. So we've been working um, with systems that a called GDT in Asia uh, as the leaders in, in that space. We've also worked with other insurance companies, and we've started to move more with the over-the-counter market, talking to brokers about digital systems, allowing them to talk with their clients and more actively um, process trades in terms of bringing buyers and sellers together rather than a, a forward exchange. I think everyone understands that the pandemic has accelerated B2C propositions hugely. What about the B2B market? I assume that people who are working in sophisticated businesses also have to rethink their models. Yes, it, it definitely has. And just, just to be clear, you know, just having a digital interface, B2C, so Boots the Chemist has a website where you can buy your your your, your things from the chemist online and they're delivered to you on Amazon. They're not what we're talking about here. That's essentially a B2C digital interface. We're talking here mainly in B2B markets. They're larger transactions. They have more functions around them. They have a lot more paperwork in the old days around them. And they, the scale is, is, is much bigger uh, in that sense. And I think the pandemic, as I said earlier, started with everyone panicking. Everyone rubbed their heads, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And I think everyone at the beginning thought it was going to be a short-lived effect and so didn't feel the need to make the difficult decision to transition. As it's gone on, they've realized oh, this is a different world. I need to now adjust my business for the new normal, whatever that means. But um, that's essentially what, what, what people have been doing. And I think also um, the need for procurement and logistics in this world has gone up dramatically. Um, I've written a couple of articles lately talking about procurement in the UK and how digital access systems could have saved the government hundreds of millions and could have saved them these significant and stupid fees they've paid to intermediaries because you could easily build an interface between buyers and sellers with all sorts of layers of buying and selling auctions, direct transactions, etc., um, but it needs a mindset to make that happen. And that's the problem that, um, you know, sometimes people will not move until they're forced to. And usually that's too late. You've been very kind in making the story as simple as possible for our listeners. But in truth, this is all about machine learning and AI and algorithms and, and things, perhaps words that are often used incorrectly. But could you tell us a little bit more about how Perfect Channel works with AI and machine learning? 
The public's general perception of AI, artificial intelligence, you know, they think robots and they think um, humans not controlling things and robots taking over the process and making decisions. Uh, That's actually not what I'm talking about at all. AI is quite a broad church. And one of the biggest sectors that for business is what we call data learning and data science. Data science takes lots of data and helps you look at it in a smart way to make better decisions, either for your clients or for yourself. And there are two pieces to that. Once you've got a digital system, you can track what everybody does going into the system. So all of the pre-trade information, what have they looked at? How have they looked at? What did they look at yesterday? Were the different areas they went into? How far did they go into this? Were they a serious bidder? Were they not, et cetera? That's what I call the pre-trade data pool. And then when they've done a transaction, that transaction has lots of facets to it, which are recorded. And then you can track over time Who's buying what at what price? Were they the bidder? Were they underbidder? Were they, were they regular participants, etc.? And then putting all that information, you can feed that back to the participants and help them with the decision next time. Say, yesterday you bid on this BMW 3 Series, you missed out. Here's another one that's now available. It's based somewhere else, but we can get it to you. And this is the rough guideline price. Would you be interested? And in many cases, for example, there's one company that now has around 20% of their transactions guided by recommendation algorithms, and the average price sold is 10% higher, 7 to 10% higher than uh, it would have been done in a normal marketplace. So we're talking very specifically within the artificial intelligence umbrella, the data science piece, where we're using uh, data that is generated from our digital marketplaces and auction marketplaces and then reused and analyzed. But be absolutely clear, you need a very rich, detailed data uh, stack, if you like, to really analyze. You can't make inferences and analysis from a weak data set. And that happens sometimes. People have poor data, then they start to make decisions on it, and it's not full. And the decision-making is actually worse than not having it, frankly, when, when that happens. Gary, you've had a very distinguished career in uh, very conventional markets, if you want, and I mean simply that they're sophisticated but well-known stock exchanges. How does Perfect Channel fit into that whole world of exchanges, or is this very different? Well, traditional exchanges have become electronic over the years. Every major marketplace is electronic. The last bastion was the Linda Metal Exchange Ring, uh, which has just been announced that they may be closing it. I, I used to be the CEO of that company, so I understand the competitive tensions around that. Um, but exchanges generally are based on electronic systems. They're really technology businesses, frankly, now, and everything's geared to that. And what they need to have is le- very low latency transactions, open access, absolute stability, good management of data, and the ability to meet regulatory and reporting uh, lines. And so that's the very minimum. And then, of course, on top of that, you have functionality built around whatever the asset class is that the exchange trades, and that is then built in there as well. So in terms of do we build big low latency systems? No. Do we build big back office systems? No. What we build are designated systems that help all of that flow. For example, in exchanges that have commodities, the commodities have to be delivered. They have a warehouse network. They have a whole process. In the precious metals, there are vaults and, and, and bullion is stored, etc., and moved. And all of that can be managed better with electronic interface than it can with old-style analog processes. And I know people say, well, yes, that has been happening, etc., but believe me, not happening as fully as it could be. So when we talk to exchanges, and we are talking to a number of exchanges, 
it is about the speedboat approach to defined projects um, rather than uh, specifically direct trading in their things. However, given that the over-the-counter markets and listed markets are getting close together all the time, we also look to work with players in the OTC market, how they can talk to their clients with electronic access rather than over the telephone and rather um, in, in the old-fashioned way, if I may say, uh, and then link that into the exchanges for clearing, for example. Clearing is a big thing in markets these days because you get down positions, capital efficient and, and all those good things. There are safeguards on, on failures, etc. And so um, exchanges would use us for discrete projects for all of what I just discussed, except for the ultra-low latency um, systems. We could also look at um, data science again, analyzing who trades on the exchange, what they've done, how they look at it, how could they best structure the market to, to maximize the amount of trading on it. One thing exchanges can't do is the highly regulated markets is offer advice to clients. So things like recommendation algorithms, things for trading are really not the way to go with, uh, with regulated markets. As you've said a couple of times, it must be very exciting to be in a business like this, in a market, the B2B marketplace technology world, which is in great demand. What's the growth plan for the business? Yes, I mean, the, the, the company has not done a particularly good job at raising its own profile. You know, it rarely loses deals. It's not in enough deals. So clearly, we need to raise our profile and people understand what it is that we do. Because the opportunity, first of all, in the core business, the existing business, is absolutely massive. If you look at many, many industries, um, we've looked at a lot lately, for example, forestry, flowers, transportation, freight, uh, logistics for lo lots of other things, uh, shipping. Um, and if you look at every one of those markets and look at the way that the market operates, quite often there are vested interests that want it to stay with wider margins and they'd like to keep it that way. Because once things get to be in a transparent arena, margins go down. There are better prices for buyers and sellers, becomes a more efficient market. But if you like, the juice in the middle comes away. And if you look at every market, look at the insurance market, for example. Lloyds of London announced a, a revamp and uh, a, a new process that they're going to look at for their markets. They're only in phase one of 20 for doing that. And so I think the insurance market is traditionally um, underserved by technology adoption. And I think from that perspective, we, we could add a tremendous value there. So right across the board, really. I think also, though, for our company, one of the really interesting things is for us to get involved with owning marketplaces ourselves either with um, partners or on our own. Partners would be better because the subject matter experts would be working with us on that. We call that the pivot. We're pivoting the company to have a balanced business between selling software as a service and actually owning part of the system or all the system ourselves. Now, why does that matter? Because you have the convexity of revenues, you have non-linear revenues in the second case, i.e. if a market's successful and increases trades, we don't just get paid for building the system, we also share in the value created by creating the, uh, the interface. And that's of great interest, and that's of great interest also for other investors wanting to invest in this sector. They say, well, what's the growth in the core sector? Wow, there's a lot of growth in a lot of different areas. And secondly, if you look at some of that growth and you put your own capital in alongside us or on your own, you can significantly benefit in that regard as well. And the other aspect is geographical, of course. You know, I say that a lot of technology innovation comes in the United States. There's clearly a lot of important companies in Europe. Asia, probably less so in this sort of space. 
So I think there are opportunities there, and Africa certainly, although you've got scale issues perhaps in, in certain areas. But we've actually been approached and working with people in the States, um, which you would think would be the most competitive or most advanced market. But there are not many people, not many companies of our scale that could deliver something hopefully on time at a lower cost and make that unique for that particular client. We've already discussed that the pandemic has helped accelerate some decisions, but I still think very hard about the inertia of big businesses to rethink, if you want, the way they do things. Is it hard to convert clients? Well, some of it's about trust, to be honest. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess there are many ways to sell, but there are two broad churches. One is top-down and the other one's bottom-up. So top-down, you influence the C-suite people, you influence the CEO. This is what a lot of management consulting companies do. They work with, with the CEO to work out a digital strategy. Then it has to be implemented, and it has to be implemented. Usually, they go with their own IT departments, which is usually the wrong thing to do because the build versus buy decision, nine times out of ten, you should buy it and then hold other people accountable for the delivery. It always costs you more and takes twice as long as you do it yourself, and you don't have the specific expertise in that area. So in terms of persuading people to do things, if the CEO and the senior people at the company want to change significantly, it gets done. Sometimes you get approached by technology departments and by marketing and other departments within the company who then have to take the idea and have to sell it upwards. So they have to become the evangelists to get this idea through within the company. That takes a lot longer. And I would say the biggest thing during the pandemic is it's lengthened the sales cycle because we can't go and see the senior people and build relationships. We have relationships on different staff, have different relationships, different companies. But, you know, I have a lot of senior level contacts across the board, but I haven't seen any of them for a year. You know, and this is quite hard. You can have these Zoom calls and, and, and conversations. But I would say that um, you usually focus on one of three things when you're asking companies to change. Does it increase their revenue? Does it increase, decrease their cost? And does it improve their distribution? Those three things are all linked as well. But you have to demonstrate that by spending X million or whatever it is on a new system, it's going to have those benefits. Just simply improving performance or efficiency is not enough. You have to be able to measure it. And I think once you get a breakthrough with one phase of that, then very quickly you start to do a lot more. Um, But I think that if I had a choice, the top-down approach is a quicker way to market in the sense you've got to win the hearts and minds. But you also have to be credible. You have to be a subject matter expert and be seen as a trusted advisor. And if you're a small company, you've got to build that up. Now, obviously, we're leaning on the experience and knowledge and, and, and relationships of our staff, the senior staff, myself and my colleagues. Um, but it does take a little bit longer at the moment. If you had a magic wand that could magic up whatever you need that solved the biggest challenge for Perfect Channel, what would it be? I would magic up. 20 meetings with the CEOs of 20 target companies with the appropriate people in the room to make decisions. And I would like a workshop with them for them to show us what they envisage their strategies, their problems are. And I'd like the opportunity to help them solve those very quickly. That's all we need. We need 20 of those meetings and uh, we really will be uh, in a different sphere. Well, I'd like to think that somewhere out there listening are very enlightened chief executives looking at how they're going to reconfigure their business fit for the future and perhaps a b2b marketplace is something that they need so perfect channel uh, and the man you need to contact is gary jones chief executive gary thank you so much for joining us today thank you